0: Thank you, Tracy. I appreciate the prayer. And you know, if if there is someone here who is not a believer in Jesus, I am so glad you're here, because today we're going to talk about money, (laughs) and you're going to hear how we think about that from a biblical perspective. uh, Because we are, what we're trying to do is to go through this series, Church One Hundred and One and orient our thinking to what God says the church is to be and to do. So we're we're trying to gain a biblical perspective of these things as we think through them uh, area by area and topic by topic. If you take a look at the back of your bulletin, take a look at the back, at the bottom of the page, you will see some numbers, your financial gifts. And uh, you'll notice that there's a weekly need and a corresponding number. And you'll notice that there's a year-to-date need and a corresponding year-to-date number. And if you look at that, uh, you see that they don't match up, but not in the way that most people might think. (laughs) You are a very generous church. You always have been. And the money that you give, we take and use for kingdom purposes. Uh, If you think just in turn, and I'm going to just be um, real concrete here. If you think in terms of this facility, where we are right now, you bought and paid for the original six acres within a year and the additional 16 acres within a year. So we're here on this... Area of 22 acres, by God's grace, and who knows how that may be needed? Who knows where our country is headed? There are all kinds of things that we do not know, but by God's providential care, here we sit. You paid for this building within 10 years. It was a challenge, but you did. Whenever there is a need, and we tell you about it, every time, whether it's, it's for missions, someone in the body, or a need in the community, you've always stepped up, to meet that need. Um, and I don't know, if you, can you imagine how much freedom that gives me and Lewis as pastors? In our series on Church 101, we're talking about money today, but it, it's primarily about how we teach about it, but also some details from our history from the past, how we collect it, how we handle it. And again, just to remind you, the elders have asked me to reminisce um, about how we've changed over the decades to where we are today. This is not exactly a frequent sermon topic for us. Some of you, I hear some tittering laughter in there. Um, I, I keep really good records. And over the past 34 years, I have preached nine times about money. That's one out of every 196 sermons, averaging one sermon every four years. That's not necessarily a good thing. It's just the way it happened. And, and by the way, there's no necessary correlation between not preaching on money and congregational generosity, okay? But here's the deal. It's not just money. It's generosity with our time, with our talent, and with our treasure. That's the third part, the money part. But all three are a part of our stewardship before God. And uh, they are proof that we truly belong to God because He is the ultimate giver. Uh, Nick and Karen DiCosimo have been integral to this ministry since we began. You knew that Rachel was here from the very first week. Nick and Karen have been here from the second week. And uh, I have asked Nick to share his perspective as the permanent designated treasurer uh, because by default it happened to him and he's been doing that just about continuously uh, for most of these years. So Nick is going to come up and uh, just give some perspective uh, from uh, uh, the way that he has experienced this through the years of our church. Again, this is Church 101 and part of the history of our church.
1: So don't ask me about that house we bought in Italy. Um <laughs> This is really, uh, uh, Gary just asked me to to uh, bring out a few points, and, and this is really um, more just uh, bullet points than anything else. If, if we'd been there that first Sunday, I'm a CPA, we probably would have had a real plan and we would have gotten everything done, but second Sunday it was too late to get anything done. <laughs> so, uh, honestly, uh, and we really have never had a plan for revenue. We've never... We've never gone out and had people make pledges and then build a budget around their pledges uh instead we we come up with a budget of our expenses we we try to be reasonable about what what's happened in the past and and then we go forward with that uh but we've really uh just trusted that God would provide and we've i think we uh, the other side of that is if if it's not there, then we'll make adjustments and and um, and go on. One way, and, and I gave all these bullet, bullet points to Gary uh, before, uh, well, a few weeks ago, really. I left one out, because uh, I knew he wouldn't uh, probably approve of it, but <laughs> <laughs> one, one way that we... I, I, I went back and looked. I had some rec- a lot of records that go back, and I, I looked, and, and 11 years after we had uh, started... Um, Gary was still getting almost nothing from the church, and he was. <laughs> so one way we balanced the budget was we didn't pay him anything. <laughs> uh, and, and yet uh, every single Sunday uh, he would prepare these sermons that really I thought you know hundreds of people, thousands of people could be listening to this sermon and benefit from it. Uh, so he 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 just never it never was a matter of concern. I mean, we we tried to do what we could, but that's one way we, in the early days, uh, unfortunately, we balanced the budget. Um, One thing that's important to know, and I think uh, you should know this, Gary never wanted to know what anybody gave. Um, And and we've, as a result of that, uh, we've always had, just really a couple of people who handle the money and who are aware of what comes in, I think it 's really wise uh, that that 's the case because uh, even unconsciously, you could certainly be influenced by knowing who gives what uh, or who doesn 't give and and it just never comes up we we simply uh, don 't discuss that um, it's it 's uh, it's just not there. It, the downside of that is, uh, from our culture standpoint, people who are very generous are not, I mean, the only recognition anybody gets is, um, at the end of the year, you get this letter from me that says, you gave this much, thanks. Uh, <laughs> that's really it. It's, it's, it's very counter-cultural. I, I've, I've been involved with a lot of fundraising Uh, You know, and normally you have, like, levels of giving, you know, you have the benefactor level, you know, over X dollars, and you have these different levels, and you honor people in different ways. We don't do that. We don't do anything. You know, it's it's very countercultural, but it's biblical, I think. um, Matthew 6, 3 talks about not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I think we... Do a pretty good job of that. Um, you also notice the, the boxes in the back of the church. You know, uh, for the first few years, we passed the plate, just like everybody does. Um, and there's this one time, uh, Mr. Hill, this wonderful man who was a retired coal miner, and lived near the church <clears throat> in a really little house, had to sleep in a recliner because he had back long and he couldn't lie down he put a $5 bill in the plate and asked for change. Um, He needed $3 back. Uh, But I remember, I still remember that. That was, talk about the widow's mite. That was a real example of that. Um, But we did decide uh, at some point, uh, uh, Gary was, one of the few times he did uh, preaching on giving, Uh, we were convicted about passing the plate, and we decided that It'd be better to have a box in the back of the church where people could uh, give. And we didn't want, we didn't want uh, visitors to feel like they should give money. Um, they don't know what they're supporting exactly. And, and so we, we did that. And one, I just realized this when I was thinking about it, we don't get much cash. In fact, we get very little. We have some Sundays where we get no cash, not unusual at all. And most Sundays, there may be 20 bucks. Um, and I think in most churches, there's a lot of cash. And I think that's because you pass the plate, and everybody feels like, yeah, I've got to put a few dollars in there. You know, I've got to, I've got to put something in. The guy next to me is going to see it. I know I, when, when it's a benevolence and we do pass a plate, I order a check, and it's sent to the office, and that's where we handle all this. But I still feel like, golly, I should, I should put some money in there just so it looks like I'm doing something. <laughs> Um, and, you know, but, but that's, the, that's why we don't do it. We don't want people to do that because this way you have to kind of think about it before you do it. You have to think about writing a check or whatever you're going to do to remember to put in that box. So it's not just something that you do because this plate comes around and somebody next to you gave somebody. Um, I, we've talked about this a lot. Um, we do with our finances, we try to support missionaries in a significant way. We don't spread it around, we try to give uh, adequately to, to help them so that we make a difference in their lives. Um, we, we do try to um, be transparent about what we're doing and, and the one time that we did have some disagreement about uh, finances was when we built this church, because we had to borrow money. Um, and there was disagreement, and it was legitimate. Um, there were people who really wondered if that was a biblical thing to do. So uh, we asked Gary to spend some time one Sunday uh, teaching about uh, debt and giving. And he did. We, spent, we had a meeting right uh, in the afternoon, I think, uh, after church. He spoke for a couple hours, I think. People asked questions, and we ended up coming to a, an agreement that I think everybody supported for a way to to do to, to borrow money that was we felt was biblical. Um, but but that was our approach to to see what what did the Bible say about it. Um, well, I'll skip. I've, I've gone too long. The bottom line is uh, if you ever consulted a, there are church consultants out there who tell you how to run a church and how to manage money. Uh, we don't do any of it right, okay? Uh, we we really don't. But uh, God has blessed us and he continues to. And so, you know, we're grateful for that. So, Gary, it's yours
0: This is the first offering box that we had in the back. Uh, it was made by Tim Bell. And uh, is Tim here? Okay. Uh, he also made the other two boxes that are currently back there. I tried to get him to wire this thing so when it lifted up it played the Hallelujah Chorus. <laughs> but it uh, didn't, didn't work out that way. Uh, so I keep that in my office, just as kind of a memory peg of God's faithfulness over the decades uh, to this church so, uh, and, and of Nick's faithfulness in, in helping manage these funds so well. So thank you, Nick, uh, for most of what you shared. Um, and, and by the way, Mr. Hill is one of my most favorite memories. He, uh, he, he, he committed himself to the Lord late in life. He was a rough, gruff old man. He uh, would, uh, but for some reason, the babies in the church adored him. They just, he was a baby magnet, and he'd sit there, this rough, gruff man with a baby on each knee. You know, church babies just came up to him. I, don't, I do not know to this day why that happened, but I remember one day in a prayer meeting, we were praying about all these hard decisions that, you know, should I build this house? Should I build this? You know, people were, were, were scraping the stratosphere with their majestic prayer requests and Mr. Hill prayed, "Lord, I thank you that I have a dry house, and food, and clothes." I mean, I I spent time with Mr. Hill. He, he lived in one of the in a four-bedroom, I mean, sorry, four-room house on the other side of the um, soccer fields on Timberlinks. Single light bulb coming down, just a bulb in the middle. And to me and Betsy, he embodied the word commitment. Um, the, uh, and also about passing the plate one of, the, one of our church kids <laughs> I was told about this later his grandparents were visiting and he said you'll love our church grandma it's free <laughs> <And> so <laughs> oh my um, finances should never be allowed to become leverage that motivates decisions within the body of Christ so that's One of the reasons why I just don't want to know. And Lewis doesn't want to know. Uh, Twice this month I've been told of conflicts where a prominent member of a congregation, uh, not here, not even in Chattanooga, this was elsewhere, threatened to stop giving their money if the leadership didn't do what they wanted. And in both cases, the leadership caved. Both cases. Uh, That's just a failure of integrity on both sides. Because for a congregant, money is not leveraged to get your way and for pastors and elders your principles are not for sale so Scripture speaks a lot about money uh, and, and what we want to do is to think for a few moments in the passage that Tracy read for us if you'd like to turn to Matthew 25 if you're not still there we want to talk about the way that God wants us to think about this there six, 16 of Jesus's 38 parables deal with money that's a lot So when you open your Bibles to see what the Bible says about our possessions, you don't have far to look. It's on every page, just about. And the page I want us to examine is in Matthew chapter 25, where it's clear that money, our our grip on it and its grip on us, is the clearest gauge of whether or not we're God-centered or self-centered. Now, as you are looking at that passage, uh, starting with verse 14, I, I just want to make a few comments about a foundational truth. Why do we give? It's because God is a giver. And we are His image. God so loved the world that He, what? Gave. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life. Christ loved the church, and He gave Himself for her. God is a giver. We are His image, and we're to be givers. And whenever I've taught on this, my main thrust has been on, on, with this image, the image of a hand. In our hand, we have our time, our talent, and our treasure, all three. And the question is, is our hand like this or like this? Is it closed tight around my time? my talent, my treasure, or is it open? Lord, I'm not in control. All of this, all of my earthly life, every component, part of it, is under your lordship, and I am a manager, including a manager of the days of my life. We were just singing, I will glory in my redeemer, and I just lose it every time I sing that song. It's actually one of my funeral songs. Don't get excited. <laughs> I will glory in my Redeemer. Because I know that when it comes to time, talent, and treasure, I'm not where I want to be. Especially with time. It's my time. That's the one I struggle with the most. Talent, yeah. <laughs> I've got what I've got. I do want it to be used well. Treasure. Those are the... I think about that a lot. And I believe that the deeper your faith, the more open your hand. Well, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, uh, a lot could be said from the context here. And uh, I'm going to do what I don't usually do. I'm just going to focus in on on the verses. And, and extract some principles from what we see here instead of looking at it in the larger context. But the, the, the idea is, our, the focus is on the stewardship of our lives as we stand before Jesus. We are accountable for what we do, and the application is with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. And here's the story. Before an owner go, goes on a journey, he calls in three servants— and he gives each one of the servants a, a, a particular amount to steward, to manage in his absence. The servants own nothing, they're simply to manage what the master owns. And in, in the Greco Roman world, it was common for masters to grant trusted slaves stewardship over their holdings while they traveled for other reasons. That was not an uncommon thing. So, this is not an unusual ser- scenario. But here's what is unusual. They would entrust it to one servant. In Jesus' story, there are three servants. Why? Well, Jesus will make that clear. And he entrusts them with talents. A talent is a weight of silver, and we can talk about its relative value. In today's terms, it would be about $400,000. That's a lot. But that's not the point. The point is, we think of everything, I'm sorry, everything we think of as ours actually belongs to God. It's not ours. Who gives us our time, our talent, our treasure? God does. And by the way, to whom do we ourselves belong? To him. So don't miss the point. We are not owners, we are managers, we're stewards, and we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So here's what the servants do in verse 15. The one he gave five talents to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. So there's a recognition of different abilities there. He went on his journey, and immediately the one who'd received five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who'd received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So two invest, one hides. And then the master returns. And the application is pretty clear. They're going to give an account of their stewardship of their gifts before God. Look at verse 19. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And in the, in the context here, this is a bigger picture of, Lord, when are you going to return? So he's, he's returned. He's settling, he's settling accounts. The one who received the five talents came up. And, and the verb here indicates some measure of excitement came up and brought, five, and, and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This, now, the same thing happened with the, the man who had two. Enter into the joy of your master. In Verse 23. Now, I want to make some observations about these two men. First of all, they have a high view of their master. They know him. They think he's wonderful. They know he's fair. And you can hear the excitement in the reports because they know they are in for a blessing. For them, stewardship is not a burden. It's a matter of a challenge, but it's a joy. They don't think, you know, this money is 90% mine and 10% of it belongs to him. So I'll give him his stupid 10%. Put differently, everything in our lives, our background, our education, our health, our time, our wealth, all those things ultimately are from God. And how do we view those things? With an open or a closed hand. Second, these these servants not only have a high view of their master, they have, have a high view of their master's agenda they know that the purpose of their stewardship is to pursue the masters agenda so that's what they do they love the master they'll love his agenda do you love what Jesus loves husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her Jesus is in love with the church so if you love what your master loves If you love your master, you'll love what your master loves. So Jesus gave 10% of himself to the church. Just checking to see if you're listening. And here's where it becomes clear why Jesus tells a story about three servants. We expect the contrast to be between good and bad servants. But there's also a contrast between good and good. Jesus is not only exposing unfaithfulness with the bad servant, He's also showing us that he does not quantify the outcomes of faithfulness. He desires that we do our best with what he has entrusted to us, with our abilities, which are also from him. Notice what does not happen. The first guy doesn't point to the second guy and say, but Lord, I returned much more to you by way of quantity. Shouldn't I have received greater joy Because God would say, I not only gave you the endowment, I gave you greater ability, greater opportunity to harvest that kind of return, and you were both equally faithful to me according to your different abilities, different opportunities, and you both get joy. That's what you both get, joy. And I think there's an implied or maybe an inferred point here that is very important, my brothers and sisters, because some are able to give more than others when it comes to the treasure part. Some have greater talent than others. Some are blessed with a better family background. Some are athletic. Some are blessed with the ability to navigate school with a 4.0. Listen, God does not want you to let Satan short circuit your joy by inviting you to compare yourself your time, your talent, your treasure with others. I want you to get that. He gives them both joy because they were faithful to him and to his agenda. I have a picture on my computer of a, two boys standing on, you know, the three tiers for first, second, third, like in the Olympics, where there were tiers standing, two boys standing on there, the boy that was standing in first place with the sign saying first is looking at the boy standing in second place, and the boy standing in second place is ecstatic, and he's holding up the second place, and the boy standing in first place is looking at him crying because he, he, wants, to be the, he wants to be the other boy. I guess you had to see it. <laughs> but comparisons can change your focus and rob you of your joy. Their rewards were commendation, responsibility, and joy. But then there's the third guy, the third servant. And if this man had said, Master, you're, you entrusted your talent to me. See, I've gained one more talent. He too would have had what? Joy. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he, ex- he offers excuses that expose his heart. Look at verse 24. And the one who had also received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. So here it is. See what you have is yours. No more, no less. Now, I want you to think about that. Because if he believed his own excuses, then he should have been all the more diligent. If he believed, that God was like this, that his master was like this, then he should have been all the more diligent. If he were lazy only, then Jesus would have said, he would have done what Jesus said, put it in the bank and let it earn interest. Why doesn't he? Because Jesus calls him not just lazy, but wicked. And the man's excuses are all not about banking conditions, they're all about his master. I knew you are like this. This is how I understand you to be. I want you to, this is what I believe Jesus is implying. He doesn't, this servant does not believe God's word. The master said he would return and here's the best case scenario for people who think this way. What if he doesn't return? And for him that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. He does not enjoy the presence of his master. He's much happier pursuing his own life. And by the way, the money with the bankers would leave a record. So let's bury that thing. And even more deeply, and this propels us outside of the parable, he doesn't really believe in the God of the Bible. He's got a low view of God. Because when, when the master says to him, if you thought I was like, the implication is, if you thought I was like this, then why didn't you operate this way? But the master, the other two servants, don't see God as unreasonable. They don't see God as grasping. They aren't afraid of him in a bad way. They're eager to be in his presence. But this guy thinks that his time, his talent, and treasure are his own. And he ignores his master's agenda, which reveals a horrifying truth. He's got no relationship with the master. And this is a strong warning. God has no claim on my life. It's my life. It's my time. It's my talent. It's my treasure. If this is your way of thinking, then your attitude is no different from that of an unbeliever. If this is your view of God, then there needs to be repentance and salvation. Because the God that you say you believe in is not the real God if you do not feel joy at the prospect of being in God's presence, if you don't want to be around him, God will allow you to make that choice forever. Faithful servants don't tremble with fear. They're trembling with excitement. They don't dread Christ's coming. They delight in it. They want to hear the words, well done, good, and faithful servant. And Jesus has given us a practical gauge of where You stand when you stand before him. Do you live with an open hand, with your time, your talent, and your treasure? It's a measure of your heart. You can give to God without loving God, but you can't love God without giving to God. Now, at this point, we're going to move away from this parable and close with some perspectives about what the Bible says about money and possessions. I mean, there are so many things that we could talk about and our time is short. We could talk about tithing and how the Old Testament tithe, which I would argue is 19%, 10%, and then 10% of what was remaining, which was 90, um, that, that changes and transitions in the New Testament from a percentage to a proportion. Uh, but that's a longer uh, study, Besides, it's very ironic uh, to me that even among Christians who say they believe in tithing, statistics show that there are pre- there's precious little tithing going on. So according to the Department of Commerce, the poorest households give between 5 and 6%. The wealthiest households give, give between 2 and 3%. It may be more by volume, but not by percentage. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Now here's a radical thought. Have you ever considered the possibility that a tithe could limit what God wants you to give? Lord, your five talents have earned five more, but I spent four of them on a larger house. And, uh, but here's the deal. You are 20% ahead. Good for you, right? Paul told Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, your ultimate portfolio, so that they may... Take hold of that which is life indeed. So think about that passage. Once your standard of living is set in an appropriate place and more money comes in, do you change your standard of living or do you change your standard of giving? Stewardship is about money only secondarily. It's about the investment of your life for eternity. Randy Alcorn describes the time when John Wesley was shown around a a very large estate by a wealthy man and the proud owner said, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley thought for a moment and he said, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all of this. If you compare a poor unsaved man with a rich unsaved man, why is it harder for that rich man to enter heaven? Because if your treasure is in this world, then every week you live, every day of your life, you're moving away from your treasure. But if your treasure is in heaven, then every day of your life you're moving closer to your treasure. Believers are no longer under the law, and giving is now to be motivated by grace, proportional, cheerful. It's not about... Ten percent. It's not about nineteen percent. It's not about any particular amount. It's about you. You are to be a living sacrifice. Romans twelve one and two tells us, and that living sacrifice is your spiritual offering. That's what the Greek word is about. It's about an, uh, something that takes place in a worship service. It is a spiritual offering. You are the offering. Paul said to the Philippians, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. So, in other words, Paul is saying, you know, if you don't give, I'm okay. But you're not. Now, we've been talking about money. What about time and talent? And I'm going to wrap things up here. But there may be some people uh, sitting here who for one reason or another cannot afford to give of treasure for whatever reason. And in fact, you may need help from us. That's what the body's about. We want to know that and we want to be involved and we want to help you. So let us know. We have things put in place for that that are confidential. But in terms of stewardship, the longer I think about this, the less it complicated it becomes. What about the time and the talent part? There are so many ways to invest those things. Discipleship of someone, work days here at the church, helping in the kitchen, helping with a meals ministry, helping set up chairs before and after the service, nursery work, youth work, Sunday school teaching, vacation Bible school working. Growth group ministries that you have to each other. Visiting someone who's lonely. Helping your neighbor when they need it. Showing hospitality. The Bible speaks a lot about hospitality in your home as an important Christian grace. Neighborhood Bible study. Volunteering with one of our local missions groups because they they could use the help. So those are some specifics. And if you're sitting here thinking, hey, you know, thank you, Lord, I'm I'm engaged in some of those things. Great. Great. I hear of all kinds of things happening after the fact. I didn't organize them. Lewis didn't organize them. I just hear, oh, yeah, that was that need, and it got met. It was done. It was taken care of. That is so, I'm so thankful when I hear those kinds of things. And, and I appreciate you. I love that. It's great. In three weeks, I'll be stepping aside from the title of senior pastor here. Do I become junior pastor? As I look at the church family, here's some things that I love and that I'd love to continue to love. I love it when husbands and wives get their financial priorities aligned with Scripture, not quarreling over money, which results in less conflict in the home and happier and secure children. I love it when children, through observing their parents, learn to live like this, open-handed, raising the next generation of givers. I love it when when our budget is driven by vision, not dragged into shape by lack of resources or by guilt. It's never been a problem, but it sure could. I love it when missions is fully funded. I love it, and I want to see it happen. That As a church, we would live in the joy of good stewardship and that we would receive... Now listen, this blessing, here's a blessing from Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Because, brothers and sisters, meeting the church budget is too small a goal. The Lord has bigger things for us than that. But on the dark side... If I am looking for contentment and security and worth and purpose and fulfillment, which are good things, but if I'm looking for those things in money, in talent, in the way I use my time, then my head's in the wrong place. Money has become my master. And Jesus made it clear, you cannot serve two masters. The ultimate giver is God. The giver of all good things of every good and perfect gift comes from heaven. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the most extensive section on giving in the New Testament. Go home and read it this afternoon, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But chapter 9 ends in verse 15 with this strange statement that seems disconnected from the whole section about giving. Here's what he ends with, this statement. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And the point is, you can never outgive God. Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son so that through faith in him we may be saved. And Lord, if there are any here who have placed their security in riches or something in this life, help them to let that go and turn in faith to Jesus as their Savior. We acknowledge that we're all sinners. But that while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.